Want to start your own podcast? Anchor makes it super easy. Here's what you need to know about Anchor. Most importantly, it's free. Second, there are tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor distributes your podcast to numerous platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and more. You can make money from your podcast with minimum listenership, and it's everything you need to make a quality podcast all in one place. So what are you waiting for? Download the free Anchor app or visit anchor.fm to get started. Evelyn Lewis is the CEO and founder of SBTS Group. As a career entrepreneur, Evelyn consulted for government organizations for over 20 years, building technology solutions for global health crises such as Ebola in West Africa and COVID-19. He was a core functionary in formulating the Sierra Leone Presidential ICT Task Force, which further wrote Sierra Leone's ICT policy and lobbied to connect Sierra Leone to the outside world through marine fiber optics. Evelyn was responsible for implementing the first commercial e-learning solutions in Sierra Leone, an online jobs portal, and also the first biometric pension system in West Africa. Evelyn, welcome to the show. Welcome to another episode of the WTF Podcast. On this episode, we speak with Evelyn Lewis, who is... How do we how do we best describe Evelyn um, Lydia? He's into so many things. He's a tech guru. He's in training. Um, he's he's just he's in health tech. He's sort of done it all, and we get to listen to his entrepreneurial journey and how that led him from Sierra Leone to the U.S. and back to Sierra Leone again. Yeah, so I don't know, the term mogul seems to apply. I mean, he's in the, you know, health management space. He's, you know, well, he's going to talk about Ebola response and, you know, case management and tracking in that respect. He's worked in technology, uh, cybersecurity. So I think it, the he, like, runs the gamut um, and then just several regions of the world he has presence and expanding businesses on the continent so definitely a a good news story um as it relates to kind of african business in multiple sectors so we're not going to waste any more time telling you about him we're going to allow the man to tell you all about what he's doing himself so without further ado evelyn so welcome back to another wtf episode and I have the esteemed pleasure of introducing Mr. Evelyn Lewis from the SBPS group. Welcome Evelyn, how are you today? I'm doing great, thank you very much. Wonderful. So for our audience, um, could you tell us a little bit about your journey into entrepreneurship and what prompted the genesis of your multiple businesses on the continent. Thank you very much. Um, again, I uh, hope you guys are doing well in these COVID times. Um, I think you, the question for entrepreneurship for me started um, at a very early age when um, you know I come from a relatively financially okay family. <laughs> We're not very rich or anything like that, but um, there was a time where my mom left to come to the U.S., um, and I was around 10 at that time. Uh, and we had to, things had to change a little bit. And that definitely meant that um, my comfort level that I was used to changed significantly um, to where I needed to get certain things that I was used to getting from my mom. And now I was staying with a guardian whereby uh, they couldn't afford to give me those things. And um, somehow we were always uh, taught to work hard. And I started, um, you know, just around, call it 12, making card boxes, um, you know, homes out of card boxes or buildings out of card boxes and getting a little extra money for that. And I became really good at it. 
So through that, um, that entrepreneurship blood has been running in. So whenever I feel like um, I need to get, make my independence um, you know, certain, then I turn to my entrepreneurial instincts. And it gives me a lot of um, room to create um, a lot of value for myself and for the communities I work with. So in starting um, SBTS Group, I realized uh, my tech surgeon started somewhere in 1989 when I just came to the U.S., um, you know, and with some of the little entrepreneurial bits that I've been dabbling with as a kid, everything that could turn into money <laughs> inspired me. And um, so I got into a radio shack and there my I saw a computer um, and then I asked my mom, I'm like, what is this? And she's like, ask the salesperson. And um, the guy came in and he's like, this is a computer. I'm like, what is a computer? That started my curiosity into computing in general. So he explained to me what it was. And of course, there was no money to buy it at that time in the US. And then, of course, um, I picked up a, um, a job and my mom helped me to buy the first computer along with my sister. And that was the start of SBTS Group <laughs> as an individual, not as a company. But I was so fascinated with everything that a computer could do at that time. And then I could see there are other things that it can do if we only tweak it this way. And in doing that, um, we realized, I realized that obviously this is an opportunity of a lifetime. And um, I had from that point coined out that this is what I want to do and just kept on pursuing different ventures until it really became um, a company that could actually do lots of things, um, uh, both for me personally, financially, and then for the communities that we work with. And in doing that um, for SBTS Group in particular, which is like the mothership for the other companies, we realized um, that we weren't just making money, we were making significant impacts on people's lives. And one of the biggest surgeons I've made was to go back to Sierra Leone around the homecoming season in 2002 to see how Sierra Leoneans could actually help to um, give back to the country and help to redevelop. And there I sourced a lot of different opportunities um, that we saw clearly that this was an entry point for us to come into Sierra Leone, being that we've been doing some business in the U.S. at that time. Uh, so we just wanted to expand into Sierra Leone and um, we realized training was a big problem. Jobs were a big problem and equally so um, getting the right service provider to do these things were all major challenges um, at the same time, both on the continent um, and um, here as well. So. In a nutshell, um, I think the journey there uh, has been an interesting one. Um, lots of stories, good ones, bad ones, <laughs> <laughs> and lots of lessons learned along the way. And the sort of resilience you need to actually go to the next ones um, would all be part of what I'll be touching on as we go. Um, but please go ahead with uh, some other questions there. So Evelyn, would you mind breaking down what are the different companies that and service offerings that are a part of the SBS group. So SBTS group as SBTS, a, as the I'm as sorry. the mothership. Um, okay, so let me just give you a quick story on what where that name actually means. SBTS group. So when I just started in, here in the US, it used to be called Small Business Technology Services because I used to only try to cater to small companies. Um, I had a friend who had an accounting firm that was called Small Business Accountants. So I'm like, well, I'm going to be the tech guy. You know, at least providing then it was like network support, building websites for them, um, you know, getting their emails working, etc. And um, so then we started doing some work where we got a, a major contract through um, a subcontract from U.S. Customs um, from another company called Barton Associates. And then as we were doing some of that work, then the, the provider asked me, like, what is your company's um, initials mean? And I'm like, small business technology services. He's like, um, I don't think you're a small company anymore. Some of the things you're beginning to do now, it sounds like you should be thinking of that name. And I'm like, you're right. And then that S became Sierra. So that was the easy change for me. So, so since then to now, it's been Sierra Business Technology Services. Um, but going further with that, uh, so SBTS Group is, we call it as a turnkey IT services provider. And that's the way it started off. Um, and when we started, it was primarily doing mostly websites and some, some software development. And then we got really strong on the software component where we've gone on to do uh, multi-million dollar systems in uh, biometric software, pension fund software, 
um, very big um, websites for ER, um, um, ERP softwares, which are enterprise resource planning um, applications. And then on the SBTS group, we're also doing training and um, providing numerous other services. Um, but in that, we also realized that um, for the training component, we realized that there was a huge market um, when we did our strategic planning. And in that um, planning, we realized that training soul needs to be on its own. The training component needed to actually uh, morph on its own as its own company so that it could actually get the attention. Because what we realized is um, it was competing on, on par in terms of revenue with SBTS Group uh, with the services that we're providing back then. And around that time frame, um, for example, when we just entered Sierra Leone, um, the birth of Sierra Leone was more so in, in, in uh, training so was more so in Sierra Leone, but SBTS Group started out in the US um, back in 99, and that was just after college actually. Um, but for training soul, we realized what was happening in Sierra Leone was that uh, we needed to hire good employees. And it was very difficult at that time to find very qualified software developers. I mean, you could literally count them in one or two hands. I mean, I mean, uh, to say the number of software developers you may need or competent, um, qualified, um, uh, you know, developers and network engineers. Uh, so what we did then is started training for our own internal team. And then that morphed into training for the public. Um, and in so doing, we realized that we were solving many problems. We were fixing our own problem, which is internal um, staff. Um, and then we also had the general challenge from employees that um, also were bringing in their relatives and friends to say people can benefit more from this. And as we did that, it grew significantly to a point where we started doing training literally for the whole country. And we made sure we started um, to standardize a lot of training um, related materials um, for other companies. Uh, we had, I, I remember Kim Bima came to us to say, they, they, well, they poached a few of my staff. And Sam King was jokingly saying, um, Evelyn, you've, you guys have done so good um, in training some of these people, but we're not going to leave them in your place. So we're going to end up taking some of them. So of course, we kept on improving our training to now started training for most of the institutions in Sierra Leone from the Zenith Bank, um, Commercial Bank, and many other institutions around. And um, lastly, Colmania came out of uh, our need to outsource, uh, you know, create outsourcing jobs um, on the continent. So the concept behind all companies, all our companies now is not just for Sierra Leone, we're actually in several countries now on the continent. And Colmania was primarily meant for um, outsourcing to Africa in particular, because in our operations in India, my employees would typically ask Mr. Lewis, We've been to Sierra Leone with you, um, and we see that um, you guys can speak very good English. Why don't you start to um, build um, a call center here so that you can actually get some of the outsourcing work that is coming from the US um, to Africa? And um, also, being someone that um, has worked in the, in the DC area quite a bit, I also knew people who were looking to outsource some of their call center related work or call it back office work to um, other countries and i was like if i look at the unemployment rate unemployment rate on the african continent i see no reason why we should not use um, uh, outsourcing to actually um, improve the lot of our people and particularly the youth whereby it takes us about three months to train a qualified person to be able to answer um, a call or respond to a client whether it was graphics design um, or anything like that. So in that, we decided that Colmania should be part of our 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 fair of companies. And in that, we also decided that it should also be its own entity. So thus came the three companies. They were always related to something um, that we're doing around existing practices. And we realized also that there was a local need for um, the services for call centers. And the extension of Colmania was even more um, a generation from the, the Ebola call center that we did. So everything, all the materials we had gathered to actually do our own call center became extremely useful when we decided to do the Ebola call center. So 
I want to understand, based on what you just said and the incredible reach and potential that you've had on the continent and beyond, what is in your jollof? What is the secret sauce <laughs> that allowed you to have been in business for three decades in multiple sectors, in multiple countries? Please let us know. What is the secret sauce? What are the ingredients? Let us know. Oh my better, goodness! Better yet, just make the jollof and send it to us. With the- <laughs> <laughs> we don't want to do the work; we just want to consume at this point. I tell you, right? But- I'll take the plasas. I'll take the cassava leaves. Whatever. <laughs> what is it? Well, well, be careful what you ask for. I can cook all of them. So. <laughs> <laughs> This conversation is getting better and better. But really, um, you know, it, it was a requirement for all of us to, to actually learn how to cook as, as young guys. That was one thing my mom did. So I could cook all of those foods. <laughs> <laughs> but um, getting to your question, yes, uh, I think um, when you talk of entrepreneurship on the continent, um, there are many things, many challenges that people go through. And sometimes it's enough to just kill your spirit and like, I don't want to do this again because it's a lot of sacrifice for you to do um, this, particularly on the continent, because one of the key um, decisions I made was to move my family to live in Sierra Leone. And um, with all the challenges that um, it, it, um, it, it posed, um, we still, I still saw opportunities there that I knew somehow this is worth it beyond me the individual in Evelyn Lewis so new inspiration started coming when you start seeing the difference that you can make in somebody's life um, in the training area for example I, I can clearly remember we interviewed almost 400 people for the call center job um, and then in the process of training I asked uh, my staff to make sure that they were inclusive that I did not want anyone to um, have any bias for who they may have known before, but right down to guys who are quote unquote called street boys or area boys um, should be given an opportunity. And there were particular uh, one. There was a particular chap by the name of Prince um, who we had asked um, to be part of our training um, because most times when you're in in these settings, you you know the the boys and girls in the area know who's doing things, so they always come to us and ask for help and. Um, we have made it clear that uh, if you were one of those guys, you would actually take any of our training for free. And if the job opportunities come, then basically we would make them available to you. So in asking some of these people during that Ebola recruitment, we um, were able to interview each person. And for some of them, it was just to tell us why you want this job. And believe it or not, um, the, the responses there, some of these were recorded, um, which we kept. And I was going through them as we we're preparing for COVID now, I guess, responding to COVID now. And, you know, uh, there was a girl there that just that cried as she was explaining. She's like, I don't know what my country is going through. I'm just worried about now. Everybody's running away. And I just want to come and provide um, to support. What was interesting for me on that call, and that really touched me, was like, she wasn't saying I needed money to feed my family. So the, the always the understanding that sometimes we pick from this is that people are just doing this for money. It was important that money was there, but this is a young person telling you that this wasn't just about money. And so for us as entrepreneurs, what drives what drives me is not just the money. It's about touching lives. And um, when you see someone respond like that, you can only realize that, you know, you have a bigger responsibility. And uh, for Prince, for example, um, he, his parent had died. Um, early, um, most of his parents had died during the war, so he couldn't go to school. Mm. And we invited them to the office. These were a bunch of, um, you know, what you call street guys. And I usually would put them in my boardroom, sit down. I'm like, today you guys are the bosses, but I need to hear something from you. Like, what's going on in your lives? You know, um, tell me. Uh, what do you plan to do in the future? And they were like, you know, it's a good thing that somebody actually calls us to ask us this question. You know, someone will be like, somebody is asking me that question. I don't know what I want to do. And then I'm like, we start going through some career um, type sessions with them because we always have a career day for our training school whereby we interview people for different career choices, kind of let them know how to make, um, you know, good career choices. And um, in doing that, um, Prince decided that he wanted to become an A-plus um, student, a certified um, 
computer engineer, I mean, at least a repair person. So we, we allowed him and um, they had to do some initial write-up. And believe you me, when I saw Prince's handwriting, I was shocked. This guy could write better than anyone in the room. Um, his handwriting, then I started learning more about him. I'm like, but what happened to you? And then he started explaining more and more. And there are many people who were faced in that in those circumstances. So us going in that environment at that point in time, we started interact, interacting more with the community. So the folks you see standing around sometimes are not um, the bums that may be assumed um, to be, but people who maybe have just fallen out and just need a second chance to get in. And you know, when I asked him about the computing, then he was like, well, they said you, you needed to have finished secondary school first, this and that. And I'm like, no, um, in this world of computers, so long you can read and write, that's all we ask of you. We don't need you to have a college degree or high school certificate. They're important, but if you don't have them, we're not going to use that as a barrier to entry. And this guy got in the class and was able to um, ace the class and beat a lot of the other students that were there that people were probably looking at him like, what, what is he doing here? And to me, when you see those things happen, um, believe you me, you forget about the money that you think you're going to make in the business and you see something else. And to me, I've seen so many cases of that, that um, despite the challenges that you see, you know that um, someone else is benefiting from these efforts that we're, we're actually um, putting out there. That was a very inspiring story. And thank you. It, it, it really just goes back to the fact that you were creating opportunity and you were not creating any barriers because so often people go into certain things and they're like, okay, these are the criteria. And especially in traditional education and traditional um, job settings, right? You have to have completed this degree and have this number of years of experience to even get in the door. And there are very few places that are giving people opportunity to shine even when they don't tick everything on the box that says that they're qualified to even start to learn. And I think on the continent, you have a lot of those scenarios where there are incredibly smart people and life just happened to them. And there are not too many people who are giving them an opportunity to, to get over the bad things that have happened to them by just opening the door and say, come in and let me see what you can do. And I think that what you're doing with that is incredible. And I'm sure it's been quite transformative for you as I listen to you tell that story. Yes, it sure is. Um, you know, thank you. And, um, you know, it's, it's funny. It's like almost any country you go, you're going to meet a prince um, um, there. I remember when we opened up in Liberia as well, it was a similar case as a young gentleman by the name of Sam. Um, you know, and sometimes what, what I see is um, people's confidence are also in in play because sometimes we are waiting for them to ask um, or say this is how you should pursue a career. You should be aggressive. You should chase it. But some people have been shunned in their own small corners for so long that they don't know how to ask. Mm -hmm. So sometimes mm -hmm. we need to find ways to actually reach out to those communities that may be, um, you know, challenged. I met a young gentleman by the name of Sam. He, he was brought on by um, someone, sort of like a helper guy. And I just noticed how much he wanted to be part of the company. Then I looked at it. I'm like, okay, he's got skills. We can use him um, and, and brought him on board. Um, similar thing in Congo, I mean, and, and some other countries that we're, we're, we're opening up in Ghana. I have so many of them, um, you know, in Nigeria as well. We haven't fully opened up in Nigeria, but we're working with partners out of there. Um, in Ghana, we're actually um, trying to get a location off of um, Circle, which is like a, an old building where Visa Internet used to be. We've gone very far with that. But um, in the other countries in Liberia and, and, and DRC, you quickly see also that um, much as there's the challenge to, to for employment, and if you think about it, our employment rates are like 70 80%. And I'm like, if we don't have ways to reach out to these folks to actually get beyond just Absolutely. the basic odd jobs, then mm -hmm. we're, we're losing not only the talent, but also we're also losing in a way to develop our society with getting the right tax um, revenues. Because when these people become gainfully employed in decent jobs that are actually generating decent income, those are good returns for any government. 
you know, somebody who might have been an, a, a, a state, um, let's say even you, even if you even have those sort of um, social means to support um, the unemployed, could now potentially return income to the to the coffers of the government via some tax revenue. Um, I think to me that the multiplier effect of that is significant for governments to take note that we can't just use our youth for election violence. There's a lot more that we can actually do. And these these folks who may have seem to who may seem to have fallen by the wayside actually can be rejuvenated with some very small effort where that effort is actually directed towards helping them help themselves. You're doing really inspiring work. And you talked about um, Thank you. Liberia and you touched on Ebola. So I, I remember working on the Liberia. I worked on the Liberia portfolio in my previous job for five years. Okay. And I was on that portfolio during the time of Ebola. And I worked on Liberia and Guinea. And I was in both of those countries at the very early stages of that um, epidemic. So tell us about the Ebola case management and tracking software and how that's being adapted for COVID um, in a just very rapid way. Okay, thank you. So with regards to the Ebola case management um, software, what had happened is that when Ebola hit um, Middle East struck in um, Sierra Leone, most of us didn't know what to do. It's like, what is it? It, it? it In some days, you know, that you listen to the news, it almost sounds like it was some war movement that was happening and um, the soldiers were just a few miles away. If you didn't run away, you were going to get caught up in it. So people were flying out, leaving all kinds of ways, people who had the means to do that. And um, we had gone to the U.S. Um, embassy where citizens um, were invited to do a briefing on Ebola uh, because... Um, some of us needed to know whether some of our families need to be away, etc. And in doing that, um, I learned more deeply that um, Ebola wasn't as um, um, contagious in terms of the spread. Um, you know, we basically listened to that and that was very helpful because it sort of gave us a good idea of um, how to help with the response. And we had just gotten a very big contract from one of the mining companies then that was in excess of a million dollars. And that contract was canceled because we could no longer send people to train on their facility. So, and those were the early days of training so um, as a company. So you can imagine that that was a big blow to us. But we also thought that this whole Ebola thing was going to disappear like in a jiffy. And um, it didn't happen. So, of course. Like with COVID? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, like some people, well, some people were wishing COVID away, right? But um, it's not that way. Um, so the whole outbreak management um, became of a serious interest to us in like, okay, how long is this going to last? And the key question that I came for me as an entrepreneur is we want to help, but how can we also help to keep our businesses alive in these very difficult times when we were asked to shut down? So if you think about it, we're a training school, at least training for the training school, it means we couldn't we couldn't run classes and for a full year we could not run classes so a lot of companies went bankrupt it affected us financially as well and we said how could we help in this response effort so the following day i went to um, who which was where the headquarters were for um the ebola response uh, so the government at that time was at, uh, was announcing that 117 was the number to call and if you called it they would provide response etc cetera, etc cetera. and at that time when the numbers were, were the number was being called, it wasn't being answered. That's because it wasn't it wasn't set up yet. That's the real truth behind it. It was more or less just one staff who had one phone that was answering calls that was not even on the one one seven number. So we worked with other service providers, um, the telcos um, primarily, to be able to get one one seven the numbers to work. First of all, they were working just on regular phones before we were able to get them in what we call soft IP, which is just connecting the phone call to a computer, to like a, a software. And in when the call comes into that software, then basically you're able to do different things with it. So in our case, when we went in there, we realized that the, the response was um, uh, disorganized in the sense that um, a lot of it, pretty much everything was being done on paper. So it was paper that was being, um, you know, man, it used to, 
people are logging all kinds of different things on paper and just leaving it. So it wasn't queued. You don't know how to prioritize the cases. You don't know which case is closed, which one is open, which burial team needs to respond, to respond, et cetera, which contact tracing team was following up with the surveillance team to know that the case is closed, et cetera. Uh, there, was, there were issues all over the place. And um, so we realized that there was an opportunity there to actually create a software for um, the, the response. And we worked very closely with DFID, um, CDC, and uh, many other partners at UNICEF um, to actually learn more about what it will take to give them sort of data that they need to actually respond to the outbreak. And that came in many forms. And we just got our entire development team, our staff, to become like full response um, team members in different forms. So we were generating, um, you know, passes. So if you were if you were moving anywhere in Sherlin at that time, then you were using one of our passes <laughs> that we did. Uh, we had to create ID cards. Um, you know, we needed to create um, softwares for different teams in terms of their response phase. We needed to interpret data for um, the different teams. For example, um, people were wondering why. Um, relatives were keeping their, their their families at home, their sick sick relatives at home at that time, but they couldn't understand, you know, that um, somehow there are factors that you could actually figure out um, using data to actually point to those. Uh, one of them was um, one day we had a very high call volume, whereby uh, we realized that um, that we have a category in terms of other, whereby all the other categories that we put in you know, may have addressed something, but we just left the general area of other in case something comes and we don't know what it is. So one day I noticed that that percentage for other was too high. And I'm like, we need to drill down to see exactly what that is. And it turns out that the two reasons people were calling for um, were one is people were calling to say, my relative that passed, that you took that you took here a couple of months ago, you have not shown us what what, what happened to them whether they died, whether they survived, because at some point of the Ebola case, um, of the Ebola outbreak management, there were lots of people who were being buried in mass graves. Um, and literally, if you died, even of other um, things at that time, sometimes it's even counted as Ebola death. Um, and at that point, we realized that people were keeping their relatives at home because you couldn't tell them what you did with the first person, whether that person died or not, because they had these beliefs that, they were being used by the West for medicine or vaccine trials and all these other type of fears that we're having right now. Um, and that was very insightful for the response teams and for the communications pillar, which the UNICEF used to manage at that time. So then, you know, those could change the sort of messages that go over to people. And then it could also help to change um, how case records were being managed because it was not until we got involved that you started getting specific case management records that this belonged to this person so you can actually follow a case from start to finish to know what happened when you picked up one person and to the end till you you return them the second one was for quarantine you can't quarantine people if you're not giving them food so the police officers and people who are in charge of quarantine were calling the call center to say hey listen you haven't brought food in three to five days these people are human beings too i'm going to let them go out to go get food so it was just data like that, but it was, it was a whole bunch of data sets that we intersect with. And we see the same thing happening now um, with COVID. And um, we know we could definitely help. And uh, we have built our new software now, which is called Outbreak Manager. Well, Health Outbreak Manager. So if you want to get some more information on that, it's um, outbreakmanager.com. And the particular things that we're doing now is we realize that data was extremely useful in helping to combat Ebola. And it is even more useful in the context of COVID because much as the spread rate in Ebola wasn't too high, I mean, uh, it's just that if, if God forbid you caught Ebola, your chances of dying were much higher. But in terms of um, you getting it was, was very difficult. You really had to be very, very close to a really sick person for you to actually get it. And the case of, of COVID is different. Um, in a case whereby we've heard one person going into one event and 140 people um, contacted COVID out of that event, um, you can see that the contact tracing for that is going to be significant because contact tracing is all about data and following up. And for the most part, what we've seen right now is people miss out what should happen in contact tracing by putting the technology first and leaving the epidemiologists behind. 
we typically work the other way around. As I said earlier, we typically like to listen to the experts to understand their various um, inputs um, and then basically how technology can enable them to do um, their work more efficiently and provide insights for them that they could actually use to do their work. In the context of COVID, if you have one person infecting 140, now the average infection rate spread from one person to the other is, is about between three to 10. So if we just take it at the low end of three, you're talking about that one person infecting almost um, 500 people. So how are you going to contact trace 500 people who may have gotten it? And how are you going to contact the other potential people that they may be coming in contact with? That's where you need contact tracing. So the tools we've developed now will not only do um, your manual contact tracing um, in terms of the basic standard way of doing it, assuming that there was no technology, but also now getting more advanced with it in terms of using what we call um, advanced contact tracing in our tool sets, which is primarily using Bluetooth, GPS data um, to actually help to uh, let you know where you've been, who you might have come in contact with. And now that we've also, um, you know, um, implement the Google and, and Apple API that allows us to inform people within the application that um, you might have been near someone who has COVID. Now, there's a lot of issues about privacy and all of that, which we've tried to address um, in the application um, by implementing HIPAA standards, uh, GDPR standards, and some very strong cybersecurity standards as well. And I think um, for what we've done, um, where it's a very proud moment that um, Ebola provided a lot of the, the, the knowledge we needed to, to, to do this. We see lots of tools out there, but they're missing how you actually should build a tool like this because we have it comprehensive in a way whereby now if you even want to travel um, via airline, we have ways in which you can help airports to actually do this pre-screening um, before you travel and after you travel to cut down on the airport traffic in terms of social distancing when you get on the arrival halls that are usually so busy, um, waiting for pens to fill out for immigration or um, just the port health information that you need to fill out. And um, there's quite a lot that we're doing in that area right now. As I'm Sorry, I spoke so long. No, well, well I, I it was really interesting because as I'm listening to you, I'm just thinking to myself, why didn't the U.S. government call you at the beginning of this? <laughs> we would have been so much further along. Um, and I think as it relates to figuring out how to manage COVID, there is so much to learn from Africa in terms of uh, disease management and the experience around Ebola, and particularly your experience around contact tracing and um, disease management from the work that you were doing on the ground during Ebola while it was happening and how you've translated that into uh, technology. And not just, as you said, technology leading, but technology being sort of stimulated by and led by epidemiology and the knowledge around the disease and just using the technology as a catalyst to, to push that out. And I think it's just amazing work. Um, I think it's also looking at, we keep hearing that data is, you know, you know, in God we trust, everyone else bring data. And I see this, the dovetailing of all of the various people that we speak to on the entrepreneurial front, on the investment front, and now in the emergency management, you know, pandemic front, just how important data is and data analytics is and how, you know, it, it really has been an afterthought in many respects but now you're sort of seeing it up front and center and driving response in very critical ways. So I'm really excited to kind of see what the evolution of, of data and data analytics and predictive data analytics will take us. I think it's an area that's fascinating. I just see more and more people, you know, developing expertise in that and um, just interested in what that sector um, will bring. But, um, oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Evelyn. Okay, sorry, sorry, interrupted. You know, I mean, I couldn't um, emphasize that more. Um, what a lot is, what is missing right now is the aggregation of that data to use in an intelligent way instead of it sitting in a silo. 
what yeah. happens is that sometimes people collect the data and it actually just sits there. Data hey, science has actually evolved. I know evolved. about that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, data science has evolved to a point whereby if you can actually pay attention to that data, you can pick out so many stories, you can pick out so many patterns that can actually help your response phase. In the context of the U.S., um, they have data to help them in, in, in some ways, but I think what is missing also is literally i could i could basically tell like listen go find anyone that you've heard that was that was responding to ebola in any way shape or form and have them in your team because almost everything i see them trying to do right now we went through on the ebola response you know even on the thing of checking your temperatures at the airport and all of this type of stuff or washing your hands all these type of things we went through that i remember even just re re returning from one of my trips during the ebola um, outbreak and coming to Dulles Airport, where I spent between four and six hours. I don't remember the exact time. And uh, when I came back for COVID, <laughs> it, we were one of those last flights that returned, you know, around that time when we were told to, I was in Liberia then uh, in our office, when we were told to actually come back. And that was like the last flight I could get. I'm like, okay, let me just get back on there. And I came back, it was another same four to six hours. And um, it was all paper based. And you realize, you know, first of all, even if you fill out those paper, they, people didn't have much time to read them at the airport. But if you can actually fill this information in advance, you know, you have a team there that can actually run um, um, the analytics on on various um, type of scenarios. Like in our application now, for example, we have a scale of one to ten, with ten being the riskiest, whereby at ten you should not be traveling. At one, you're basically just finding out, am I okay? And this takes less than thirty seconds for you to actually tap, tap, tap. And then you, you can actually tell your signs and symptoms. And in that um, context, we're seeing that you need to deal with hundreds of passengers. Now, thousands, because so many people have been waiting to travel. How are you going to allow these people back into your country? And how can you screen before they come into your country, not when they have come in there? And that's what a lot of countries need to pay attention to as they're getting ready to open the airports again. This is a crucial time for many um, developing countries to know that there are people who've been sitting in their doors where they don't really care, they just want to travel. And if you don't do the screening in advance, your case of COVID, uh, your cases might start to get not only the new, mut new mutations that might not have been there before, but you're about to see potentially an outburst. So you may have the testing components there, but they're not all foolproof when people are on the ground. Um, try to do some of the screening in advance and data is, a, is, a, is an excellent way to go. And with the general response here in the US, I, what I have to tell people um, and, and folks who are listening is your your entire EOC operation, that means your emergency operations center, needs to coordinate and they need to coordinate around data. So your, your lab teams cannot be in isolation um, where the quarantine team um, is not talking to the lab team. The surveillance team needs to be able to get the reports. Immediately the test report is available, not several days after. Um, one of the things we did, for example, in the application is that in our lab module, we actually, um, as soon as you post those lab results, it captures it and makes that results available for um, for the individual immediately through an EMR platform that we work with, um, with in observance of HIPAA re requirements as well. That alone um, we see can potentially save thousands of other people getting infected. For every day that someone goes um, whereby they don't know their status after they've taken a test result, that person has is at a huge risk of spreading the disease to other folks. Um, so there are lots of data points to capture in COVID that can actually help to slow it down. It doesn't have to be this difficult, to be honest with you, if actually the response organizations um, are doing it right by making sure that they have a full circle approach, whereby the weakest link on that circle is actually going to get the disease to spread. And um, as Sanjay Gupta in um, CNN said, um, basically, a virus anywhere is a virus everywhere. And no matter how small your effort is, it needs to be well thought out in terms of your data strategy and making sure you have the right um, set of people helping you with your, your COVID response. Very true. So now let's pivot the conversation a little bit, okay. turning to finance. Uh -oh. Can you talk about the realities of raising capital on the African continent? Where did you go for expertise, advice? Are there any anecdotes that sum up your experience? You know, <laughs> finance, that's a very interesting subject because it's um, it's it's basically the world around which um, entrepreneurs eventually have to settle. So your passion is not enough to make your business succeed. 
Um, so long you don't have money, it may very well be the very end of it. And um, I have been through many finance rounds, um, you know, personal and otherwise, um, OPM, other people's money. And particularly on the continent, it's a very difficult thing to finance operations because you typically would have to take loans. And those loans sometimes come through favors. Those loans sometimes come through extortion um, mm. of, of you. So it takes many different forms. You know, private capital in the sense um, in many of these developing countries is non-existent. And almost when it comes, it looks almost like an aid program that um, does not see um, the need to expand beyond what an aid program is already designed for, which is phase one is just to do a feasibility study. Okay, where's the money to do the business? Um, you know, how do we get this capital to go beyond um what we typically would do where it's just the small mom and pop which is important is very important they're very important fabric they form a, a large percentage of it but in the business that we do for example in technology bankers don't easily understand it and don't want to finance it because it's not what you would see as trade um a, a, a trade of goods whereby you know they sell they buy and sell every day there's cash to return into the account every day they want to see that you're turning money every month and um you know, tech companies don't necessarily function that way, um, particularly if you're in the consultant space. Um, training company, yeah, more likely they're, they're more in the space of dealing with the public directly. And for you to finance certain tech ventures is going to require um, some creativity on your part and um, also trying to encourage the financial world to actually get in there in finance and tech ventures. They look at it as risky. They look at it as something they don't understand and that is going to take time for them to understand. So what you're going to go through, in essence, to get one of these loans is you're going to end up putting a lot of um, money down um, or collateral down to finance um, these operations. And the interest rates are no joke. I mean, when you, you know, especially in, in also working in an environment whereby it is likely that if you're working with a the government, they would be late on payment or not pay you at all then you realize that, uh, you know, the trend there is that it's going to impact your bank, your bankers as well. And the interest rates can range anywhere from 18, 20. I've gone up to 33% one time, um, whereby we had to go back and renegotiate with one of the bankers. I borrowed a million dollars then and our return back was we paid about half a million dollars in fees. Um, that loan took a long time to pay because um, we had a client that was really delayed in that. But you can think of if half of my money has already gone into paying that sort of interest um, as an entrepreneur, what do I have left um, to take care of my operations with a lot of employees and stuff? So you start looking um, for alternatives. And on the continent right now, um, it's getting better. It's, it's getting a lot better now. You can see some private capital coming in um, in the tech space. But it's been a, a, a very troublesome journey. Because um, the extortions that come there make it also difficult for people to pay back their loans. We've seen people who literally have run away from their, from paying their loans because they figured, well, you extorted the money or you took most of the money from me, um, so why should I pay back? Um, for us, it was always a thing of like, so long our claim, client pays us back, we're going to pay you back because we need that favor again, again, and again, and again. And, um, you know, in, in where we are now in terms of uh, COVID application, for example, I'm here in the U.S. now, and it was easy to actually get private capital to uh, begin to do that. But of course, now we're going to scale. We're going to need one, five, you know, at least um, in terms of um, the, the growth trajectory that we have now. We have to inject a million dollars. We have to inject another five million at different stage stages of it. But equally so, we're we're getting orders, and that's a good thing. Um, so through those, sometimes we're using this type of organic finance method. Notwithstanding. Um, we because of the exposure that some of us have had with finance there's also certain stigmas that actually prevents us from asking for the finance and knowing how to use finance so in venture capital money for example most people are going to say oh don't take it they're going to take your company and all that type of stuff well the reality is like if you really want to grow um you just need to learn how to use those monies whereby they're not taking your company but they're bringing in the value for both of you to invest and both of you to win together. Um, so there's a lot of knowledge that is needed in that space for um, folks, particularly within our communities, to know that these monies are out there. Um, there's grant funding for you to actually use also to kickstart certain stages of your business.
Um, this time around, we're we're using every bit of it. I mean, at least because we've we we've gotten a little bit more experience in the past, we are reaching out to different um, aspects of financing to get our financing in order. But Thank it's a very so. it's a very deep topic whereby we can go in many different directions with with it. Absolutely. And I think there's, you know, I think you mentioned a, a number of things around, you know, really understanding what investment capital can mean and, and how to use this money and just going into um, these decisions with your eyes open and just managing expectations. So thanks. I mean, I, that's a really great perspective that you shared just then. Um so we're at the time in our podcast where we ask WTF. This is the kind of rapid fire round where we ask you to share specific finance and funding opportunities, resources, tools, assistance that you know of that would be of help to our audience. And we'd like you to think about sort of specifically the African and youth entrepreneurship sectors. Is there anything that you've come across that you think, wow, that really needs to be shared more widely? Well, um, particularly if you're responding to COVID right now, I found a website that is ictworks.org. And that's ictworks.org. Um, they put out a whole lot of grant information out there for folks who are building numerous type of solutions for COVID. And this is not just for um, IT related um, things. It may be other um, type of response to build PPEs. And, and um, you should begin to look at almost all the donor agencies have some type of COVID funds. Um, they may be specific to an area of interest that they may have. But um, I just heard OPEC, for example, um, you know, giving monies to some of the, the countries out there for funding. Um, in, if you're in the U.S. and you are really trying to do a lot of stuff um, around digital health um, or even in developing countries, um, DFC seems to have a huge pot of gold there in terms of COVID response. Um, and that's the development. So that's a direct, yeah, that's a direct finance um, um, development finance um, corporation in the u.s i think they have something of about a five billion dollars fund uh, for developing countries and in that is for digital health women's health water uh, covid response ppe development um, these are some tools that you can actually use and work closely with your world bank um, you know country um, affiliates there are also funds that are coming from the world bank islamic development bank has about 500 million dollars in covid related funds um, and if you're in the tech space as well, reach out to your folks out in the Silicon Valley, um, your, your local tech association, they may have monies there as well. Internet Society, um, you know, they, these all have different types of grants. If you're used to outsourcing, you can use places like Upwork and apply for their grants. Um, there are many um, um, other grant opportunities out there for money right now. And of course, reach out to your local bank. They may have something COVID specific. If you're a minority um, in some space, we have um, funds that are targeted. I mean, there are funds out there that are being targeted towards, um, um, you know, minority to help support the Black Lives Movement in terms of um, um, finances, etc. Wonderful. That was a that was very well done. Thank you. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Thank you. Very and nice. I'm so, yeah, so Michelle. proud. Go ahead, Michelle. No, no, no. Go ahead, Lydia. You can wrap up the show. No, I was just going to say, I'm so proud. Um, as a salon girl myself, I'm just seeing you do what you do and be a, a pioneer in the space and and what you've done for Ebola and how that can, you know, impact what a COVID response on the African continent and beyond could look like is great. Um, it, it's more than great. It's stellar. So thank you so much for what you're doing. Where can people find you, Evelyn? Well, first of all, thank you guys very much for a very brilliant idea. I think um, this show, I wish this show was there when I was starting my surgeon because I have not only um, gone through some of your, what some of your old speakers have said before, I found um, useful information there that I could use, uh, Margaret, et cetera, and um, inspiring messages from entrepreneurs as well. But um, you guys just keep it up. So in terms of um, finding us, um, our websites are www.sbtsgroup.com. And then if you really want to get into the COVID action, it's 
www.outbreakmanager.com and for our training um, company is www.trainingsoul.com as in training sol.com and then Kalmin is K-A-L-L-M-A-N-I-A.com. Um, but I think um, for what you guys are doing, I really hope that um, the world gives you the audience that you need. And I'm pretty sure that we will start making huge differences in, in our communities by the sort of um, education you're providing. Thank you. From your mouth to God and everyone else's ears. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Evelyn. Really Thank appreciate you guys. your time. Thank you guys very Thank much. you so much. So, um, all right. Thank you so much. Where do we start with takeaways from from that? Like, guys, did you enjoy that conversation as much as we did? For me, there was just so much to relate to. There was so much incredible information. I felt a real strong connection to Evelyn because, you know, I, like we care about a lot of the same things and just his understanding of what people need, people's needs are and about giving opportunity to people when oftentimes doors are closed, especially as it relates to youth and giving them opportunities to use their God-given talents to thrive and to be a contribution to their society. I don't know. That just does something to me. And mm-hmm. just hearing those stories about those Sams and those princes, there's so many millions of Sams and princes and princesses and, you know, all over the continent who just need to have the type of opportunity that Evelyn has been able to provide for the young people that have come his way. Yeah, I agree. I think it says a lot when you ask somebody, you know, what's your secret ingredient? What, what are the, um, you know, how, how have you been able to achieve such great success? And they start with a personal story about someone else. It says a lot about his passion and his dedication and commitment to this. And it also says a lot that Evelyn is what, you know, was on the front lines of Ebola response in the country where Ebola, you know, the epicenter of Ebola reach in the in the region and is now applying those insights and perspectives to COVID response. And why isn't his story more widely known about, especially as the world grapples with the challenges that COVID-19 has brought and continues to bring? And so I think it's our honour and privilege, really, to be able to amplify um, African businesses in plural making such profound difference now and, um, you know, in the past and and obviously in the future. So I really enjoyed this episode. Um, There was just so much to learn. He really makes me think, what am I doing with my life? (laughs) Because tell me about I feel like I should be doing more. (laughs) I know. I know. So really, really great insights. And if you aren't inspired by Mr. Lewis, then I don't know, but, um, absolutely. And just, I, I just kept thinking to myself as he was talking about, you know, the health tech side of what he was doing around Ebola, Ebola tracing and, and emergency response. And thinking, why wasn't this man the one that was leading a lot of these briefings that my daily programming kept getting um, disturbed by? Like, why wasn't he the one leading? You know, he's got a team. <laughs> Somebody who actually really knows, who has some real applied knowledge based on while it was a different disease some really strong similarities in terms of, of, of disease management and especially around the contact tracing and, and, and how to do that and not just letting the technology lead, but letting people lead and the technology being the driver of it. And I, I don't, I don't know. There was just, I just hope that you were as motivated and inspired and, 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 and clued into that episode as I was, because I, I was, I was 100% in 
the entire time. And we just hope that you enjoyed it and got as much richness out of it that we did. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So please like, rate, subscribe, share this podcast. Really enjoy doing it and providing content that's useful for you. Also want to hear from you about topics and guests that you'd like to hear from. Uh, so feel free to give us a email at where's the funding at gmail.com. Thanks Yay, so much. Lydia, I get it right. I know. I just shut <laughs> on the back to me. <laughs> All right, guys. See you next episode. Bye.